So as you can see on the screen, we will be continuing, um, or sorry, we, we stopped our last uh, series before Easter, which was Galatians, so we've concluded that. And now we're diving into a new two-part series called Heaven and Hell. Um, if you guys can, we'll be uh, mostly working out of Luke chapter 16. So if you want to turn in your Bibles or on your Bible app, go to Luke chapter 16. We'll be in verses 19 through 31. Um, we'll be skipping around through the New Testament from there to Matthew, and we'll end up in Revelation so we can get a clear picture. Our, our assignment today is we'll be diving into the subject of hell, which would seem like a very dark subject and be like, oh, it could be kind of a bummer. But I'm going to be real with you. After preaching on circumcision in Galatians, I gladly received <laughs> the subject of hell easily. I said, thank you. We're out of that. As hard as it is for you guys to hear it, it's equally hard for me to talk about it. Um, the title of today's sermon is What's Worse Than Hell? And we'll be discussing that throughout uh, this, the passage. Now, I want to let you know, uh, as we're talking through heaven and hell, we'll be talking about the two realms, eternal realms, I want to remind you, um, of where we could end up either as believers or people who reject or are non-believers. And so this part one of the series is going to have the focus on the reality of hell and the eternal punishment that are for those who reject God's offer of grace and salvation. Now, the reason why I bring that up as a, as a point of information to just kind of give us as a primer to start us is that this is not a very exciting subject. In fact, this was actually really a heavy subject to not only put together, but also to preach through, through the weekend. But I want to let you know, I'm so glad that Jesus Christ did not sugarcoat this. And I'm so glad that he accurately described what his uh, plans were for sin, but also his plans for us. So definitely, if you do feel the weight of it, I think that that's a good thing through this passage, but also understand when Jesus takes that weight off of you, how beautiful that feeling is. So it's a sobering reminder, but something nonetheless it's that we have, to, um, we have to take seriously. So join me in Luke chapter 16. I'm going to start in verse 19. We'll read on the way down to 31, and then we'll unpack. So it says in verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury in every day. Um, just so you guys know what that means is that if you were in the day and time of the Bible, you would hear this. There was a man who dressed in Louis Vuitton and Gucci and lived out there uh, in Vero Beach. And then it says, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Good morning, Bible. Thank you for that. Verse 22, it says, this, uh, The time they came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, Send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, and I want you to hear his, his two replies here. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. 
Verse 30, no, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And I want you to hear how final the words of Abraham are here. He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Let's just take a moment and pray real quick just to prepare ourselves. Uh, Lord, I just thank you so much for your scripture. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your heart for us. Lord, I just thank you that uh, it is a sobering reminder that if we do reject you, um, we do receive the consequence. But if we do receive you, we receive the consequences of receiving you as well and receive eternal life. Lord, speak to us and reveal to us where we need to know and calibrate our hearts to yours throughout this passage. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote this line once on the subject of hell, actually on the doctrine of hell. He said, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this. If it was in my power, I would remove it. And so I just want to just put this in your hearts and minds. I hope you can relate with it. I would love if Christianity did not have even the remotest possibility of hell. Wouldn't that be great? If it wasn't even a part of the subject of conversation, I don't think anybody likes the idea of hell. But because Jesus spoke so much on it, we're going to study it. And we're not going to be afraid of it. We're going to receive it. And we're going to see what the Lord says. And I want to let you know why I think this is so important today in the church. Uh, during the pandemic, especially when we were in the lockdown, um, I had a lot of time to be on the internet, as most of you. And I saw that they conducted all kinds of polls. And there was one particular poll that the Pew Research Center did. It was called uh, On the Subject of Religious Landscape in the United States. And in this particular thing, they polled people that said they were Christians and did attend church. 72% of them said that they believe in heaven, which is like, what? <laughs> what are the other 28% even believing in? Like, what did, what did you even go to church for? Like, what were you hoping on the other side of that? Which that's bizarre, but this is even more disturbing to me. 58% of people that attend church said that they believe in hell which if you were to round it up, let's say that's 60%. That means six out of 10 people going to church in the United States today believe that there is a hell, and 40% or four out of 10 believe that there is no hell, which is a fascinating thing because the reason why that they don't believe in hell is because they don't believe that that is part of the rejection of God, which means you have to wonder if you reject the word as it's going to be accurately described from the Bible, God doesn't shy away from the subject of hell. Jesus doesn't shy away. The Bible doesn't shy away. What Bible are you reading or what is your theology or what is your belief coming from? You can't believe in something and still, and still receive it, right? You know, like, I don't believe in um, getting a cold and still get a cold, right? And that can still be the situation. So uh, I want to apply that Pew Research to this room. It would look like this. Six out of 10 people in this room believe that there's a hell and probably want to refuse hell and receive Jesus Christ, while four out of 10 people in this room don't believe there's a hell and might possibly end up in it. Now, here's where there's a challenging part. This is where we have to do the work by diving into the word. Are we okay with that? And we should not be as pastors. I will let you know it was kind of a heavy thought going through this. I am not okay with people uh, not being accurately told about the idea of being separated by God in hell and being isolated to their sin in a place of their own destruction. I want to be part of the reason that people know that there's a hell and that there's a Jesus Christ bringing the gospel to save them from it. Hell is real and it's a difficult concept, but without bad news, we wouldn't know good news. And without good news, we'd have to have the bad news still the same, right? 
This is why hell is important because it shows us God's plan to remove sin and evil from our life. Which brings us to our first point. Hell is important. Why is it important? Because God is holy. Hell is essential to God's plan for his people. Which means this. The study of hell is a good thing. And I know that's kind of a weird thing to say. But let me explain. God has a plan to quarantine and eradicate sin from our eternal lives. And that is a good thing. I will let you know, as a person um, who uh, I was raised in a family, on my mom's side of the family, everybody has uh, high blood pressure. And everyone has, on that side of the family has died from strokes. And then on my dad's side of the family, everybody has high pleasure, blood pressure and everyone's died of heart attacks. And then there's me. I'm like the superhuman. I have the highest blood pressure out of all of them. So if somebody were to come to me today and say, I have the cure for you to take one time, and guess what? You would never have to deal with high blood pressure again. Guess what I would say? Tell me more. <laughs> Go on, good sir. I would love to hear more about this. How about this? If someone here is dealing with um, some kind of a sickness, let's go to the gravity of cancer. If somebody said, I can cure your cancer, wouldn't you lean and go, let me hear more? How about this? I can cure death. I think we should stop and think about what this person's about to say. But that's what the Lord is saying. I have a way to cure death, and I will let you know where death comes from. It comes from sin, but sin comes not from without us. It comes from within us. In fact, the Bible says sin originates in the heart, and I want to let you know why this is so important for you to know. If you look at it this way, sin did not come from without of the Garden of Eden. It came from within the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and the serpent came to, uh, to Eve. And by the way, it's always like, I always got to focus on this. Eve had one commandment. Adam had one commandment. How many do we have? We have 10, right? Uh, they had one and they blew it. So we're in good company if you've ever blown a commandment. But what was God's commandment? Don't eat of the one fruit. The one fruit of the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil, right? And then the serpent came and tempted Eve, but that's still not the sin. The serpent said to Eve, said, hey, if you just eat of this fruit, you will be as wise as the Lord and your eyes will be open to the world. And she wanted that. She, she heard the temptation, but she received it. But the sin didn't come out until she acted on it. Because at that particular time, she received that she was a sinful person, right? She broke faith with what the Lord's plan was for her life. God had a plan, and she went the other way. You're, that's your way, Lord. Now it's my way. And in taking the, the, the fruit, she sinned. But if she had said to Satan, thank you, but not today, Satan, what would happen? She would have never sinned. So sin originates in the heart, and that's what the Lord is saying through the Scripture. It's very important for us to know that when God came down into the Garden of Eden, he said to them, he didn't say, who brought sin into the Garden of Eden, he said, why are you naked and ashamed? The moment that they sinned, Eve and Adam looked at the sin and said, we are, we are ashamed of our nakedness and we have to be covered before the Lord comes because they were no longer righteous. And so a righteous God who is completely holy at this point is saying to them, my holiness and your unholiness cannot mix. The Bible is expressly clear in this, that the, that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And if we look at God, God's fundamental attribute that defines his whole nature is his holiness. I want you to think about that word holy, what it means. Holiness means that God is without a hint of impurity. Not a drop of corruption. Not a smidge of sin. And sin is an offense to God because it refused to acknowledge God. I want you to think about this. Uh, uh, one time I had a phone. And you ever have a, like, you ever pick up a phone call? Sometimes it happens where you get somebody on the line and they sound like a transformer. And it's just like, you, I, what? Huh? What are you saying? It just sounds scary. 
and you just hang up the phone. Well, I had a phone that did that every phone call. And what did I want to do? I wanted to chuck that thing in the ocean. I was so sick of that thing. Why? Because it wasn't serving its purpose. Do you know that this world was created so that you could have a stage in which you were made by the glory of God to operate in the glory of God, to serve the purposes of the glory of God so that you could be in the glory of God. And if you are apart from that, you are no longer serving the purpose from which you were created for, which is why people who don't know, know God or love God or run away from God are never happy. That's why they're always chasing the flavor of the week. That's always why there's always something that's missing in their life because you were created for that purpose and you will never know peace, which is why there's no peace apart from God. Now I want to let you know what this world looks like as a sin that's an offense to God. I want you to think about this world. Imagine a world, let's go the opposite. Imagine a world with no lies. Imagine a world where everybody spoke the truth. How much easier would that be overall? I know maybe sometimes we're like, oh... Don't tell her how bad the meatloaf is. Like, you know, like, I know what you're thinking. We're not talking about that. We're talking about everything. But imagine this. Let me tell you how the depth of lies can go. We're going live from Washington, D.C. Whole different world, isn't it? How about this? What if there was never anybody who stole anything? Right? It'd be a different world. So nobody's telling lies. Nobody's stealing anything. How about a world where nobody ever had infidelity or, infidelity or adultery and all marriages were intact? What would that change the world? Would that change children's worlds? How about this? Another world or another day where there was never another murder. Starts to sound really, really nice. Now you can see why the Lord says the wages of sin is death. We cannot continue on in a place where we can offend God with our sin. And you think about this. I said God cannot tolerate unholiness. I didn't say God couldn't tolerate imperfection. So I want to give you the case in point that we're looking at right now. Uh, the Bible considers us to be blameless before the Lord, not perfect. Is there any imperfect people here in the room today? Yeah, so imperfect people is exactly who God is interested in. Unholy people are people that reject it. Now, what that word blameless means is this. Have I made a boo-boo? Have I made a sin? Have I done something wrong? Immediately I go to the Lord and go, this is not the way I want to live. Please forgive me. How quick are you forgiven? Right away. So now you have moved back into the place of being blameless. It doesn't mean perfect. It means blameless. So I can receive that forgiveness, walk right back into righteousness with the Lord through the blood of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for me. Jesus died for unholy people who wanted to repent of their sin and be made righteous and be made blameless. Why? For forgiveness. And so that's what God is looking for. And that's what we just look, we're looking at today. If you do not receive that, you receive the first death, which is physical death. But we're going to be talking about a second death. You're going to see the Bible talk about a second death, which is not necessarily like your soul dies. But that second death is separation from the God of life. If you choose to reject God and you choose to reject the God of life, you will now move into spiritual death, which is spiritual destruction, but not spiritual destruction forever. It's spiritual destruction in the way that you are separated from God. So if God says, I want to take the sinful hearts that reject me, that continue to bring sin into the world and its devastating impact. And I want to give my children a world that is pure, that is without lies, that is without death, that is without, uh, you know, um, stealing or, or murder or anything like that. Then what I'm going to have to do, I'm going to have to remove the sinful hearts that reject me. And my solution is to quarantine and eradicate the sickness of sin in our lives by giving them another place. And that place is called hell. So where is hell? 
Well, we saw in the scripture, sometimes you'll see in your Bible, it's described as Sheol, which is the grave in Hebrew. But in this particular uh, passage that we looked at, it called it Hades, which is Greek, the Greek version of Sheol, which is uh, the waiting place of the dead. And I want you to kind of see that Hades is kind of a waiting place until we get to Revelations chapter 20, which is where everybody gets thrown that is rejecting God into the lake of fire, which is more of the accurate description that you see like in the movies. Like when you see uh, there's like demons and unbelievers and there's fire and darkness and everything, that's where the final judgment goes. So right now, the people that are waiting for that final judgment are in a place called Hades. And that place is, is Hades is not so much in the ground as it is a waiting place to go to the final judgment. And so that's where these people are right now. Now, Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side or Abraham's lap, as you might see it, described in the Bible, is the other side of Hades, which is just another waiting place, but we know to be absent from our bodies, to be present with the Lord, right? So the people that have been led to heaven have been led by Jesus Christ, who in the future, not this point in the text, will die, will go in the ground, and will bring people to heaven, correct? So that's where we're at right now. So who goes to hell is our next question. We know where hell is. We need to know who goes to hell. Well, hell is anybody who wants to go to hell. Hell is chosen. Hell is the place chosen by people who do not want life with God. That's what hell is. And I want you to see the reality that's on display with the rich man that's in this text, right? The rich man never says at any point in the text, "Uh, Abraham, why am I here? I'm a Jew. Why am I here? All Jews go to heaven. I don't understand. He never says, hey, but I was a good guy. I did good things every now and then. Or I gave a lot to charity. Doesn't say anything. Doesn't even question why he's there once, does he? You know why? Because he already knew the truth. This particular man has known for a fact that he chose himself. He chose his sin over God. He never questions it. And in fact, he is so uh, honest and open with himself and sobering in the, uh, the truth. He goes on an evangelistic tear, right? He turns to Abraham and goes, hey, we got to warn everybody else. Look at verse 27 and 28 again. He says, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let, them, let him warn them so that they may not also come to this place of torment. It means there's one thing that is actually in that place of torment with him, his conscience. He's very aware uh, that he made the folly of choosing his sin over his salvation. So in choosing himself over God, it wasn't an issue of ignorance. He had the truth. Look at verse 31. Abraham replies to him, he says, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, which is another way to say, if they didn't listen to the Bible or the teachings right? They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. I want to give you a two-parter why this is so impactful that he says this. One, number one is we know that Jesus Christ raised himself from the dead, right? Which is kind of a crazy moment. You know, the, the moment that you think about the Pharisees warring against Jesus is the moment that he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, I think if you saw someone who claimed to be the Son of God, accurately tied himself to the scriptures of the Old Testament, and has now raised somebody from the dead, I'd be like, well, let's invite him over for dinner Sunday and see what he has to say. I think this guy might be onto something. But that was actually the moment the Pharisees said, no, we must kill Jesus because everyone's going to see him and love him and follow him, and that's going to undercut our way of life. That's the whole reason for killing him, which is just dumb on the science side, right? Like, I have, you just think, was there one dissenting voice that was like, wait, guys, hold on. 
He just raised some dude from the dead. How do we know he's not going to raise himself from the dead and then come back really annoyed at us? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me that they would think that. But even still, look what the Pharisees did. They didn't look at Jesus and believe. What did they do? They looked at Jesus and believed and rejected. They knew he had the power, which is why they wanted to kill him. They knew he was going to tell them how to live out of his position, out of his station in life as being son of God. So they removed him. You know, there were Pharisees that believed that he actually was the Messiah and believed he was the son of God. They just didn't like his message. They didn't like what he told them what to do. And so they said to God, basically, we don't care. Which is interesting, because if you go back to verse 24, it says, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, because I am in the agony of fire. You know what he's really asking? It's not just to quench the burning in his mouth. What he's really asking, is there hope still? Is there hope of relief And Abraham accurately describes, hey, you had the word, you had the teachings. In fact, you even saw Lazarus or somebody raised from the dead. In fact, people in the future will have Lazarus raised from the dead. You'll have Jesus Christ raised from the dead. They'll know and they don't care and you were one of them. And now you have no hope. You have no hope of fulfillment to satisfy your thirst. You have to understand that that's what the purpose that we were made for. We were made for hope. We were made for the hope of the glory of God never to be cut off from us. Do you know that what, that's what's so amazing about Jesus Christ on the cross is that even though that we sin, we know that Jesus is never going to leave until one day he does. So think about this. This is how beautiful the life is with the Lord. You know the Bible describes God is love. It doesn't say he has love or gives love. It says the very definition of love is God. So you can't talk about love eternally or completely without describing God himself. And let me just unpack that for you. God is peace. You can't have peace without love. You can't have hope. You can't have forgiveness. You can't have holiness or gentleness, kindness, compassion. The Bible even describes God as light. Apart from God, there's darkness. The book of James even says, all good things in your life, whether you receive it or not, or acknowledge or not, All good things come down from the Father of lights. So what happens when God himself withdraws himself and all of his attributes? Well, you have a place, a space, a realm that is devoid of all the goodness of God. Think about this. When you have the absence of God, you have no love, no hope of love. You have no hope of peace. You have no holiness. You have no kindness, and you absolutely have no light. What did we just describe? Hell. That is hell. So how long does hell last? Well, like most of you had a lot of time to go on the internet and read magazines during COVID, I read a Time article magazine that said that, did Jesus really say hell lasted forever? Which is kind of weird, because you can Google it, did Jesus say hell lasted forever? And 55 billion verses show up right away. I was like, do these guys even have Google over at Time Magazine? Um, they challenged it. And so we're going to challenge Time Magazine together today. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to see with our own eyes what Jesus has to say on how long hell lasts. Now, the reason I bring this up is that some people believe that hell lasts for a specific amount of time and then eventually hell just dissipates. 
you know, um, just kind of like you took a dandelion and you blew it and just flew away with the wind. That's how some people think it just evaporates. Um, Jesus is going to paint a totally different picture. In Matthew chapter 25, we are actually going to be reading about a time when the Lord takes all the people out of Sheol, out of Hades, and has now brought them towards the final judgment trial, right? So they're going to be judged for their works. And in this, he's actually judging people and telling them where to go. Turn with me in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Look what he says on verse 41. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed. Remember that word for later in the sermon, cursed. It says into the temporary fire. What does it say? Into the eternal fire, which initially was prepared for the devil and his angels. So God had never planned for hell to be a part of our life. It was for those who reject him. Lucifer and his angels, fallen angels, had rejected, right? Then you go, go ahead and skip down to 46. Let's see what he says. Then they will go away to what Time Magazine accurately described as a short-term punishment. <laughs> no. It says they will go away to an eternal punishment. Now, but for the righteous, what does it say? Eternal life. So hell is eternal. We need to know that. Hell is eternal, and since I am eternal, my choices have eternal consequences, and that goes both ways. You have to understand that you have a body, you are a soul. This body was not meant to live forever. We know that because um, uh, the other night I went to sleep and I woke up and my back hurt, so I got injured sleeping. <laughs> I know for a fact that this body was not meant to last forever. Now, one day when we get to heaven, we will receive new bodies, right? And praise the Lord that we will, but those bodies will be given to us for this express reason. One, it will have no sin in it. It will be developed to be last for eternity, so there'll be a great warranty on it, right? But also, too, it'll be made to give God the glory. These bodies don't necessarily do that because they're chock full of sin. But you have to understand, I have a body. I am a soul. Your soul is eternal, and your soul will always be with you, and your soul's choices have eternal consequences. So the immaterial you is something else separate from your flesh and blood, but nonetheless, it is consequently tied to your choices. Now, how long does this punishment last for an eternal soul? Well, we just saw in verse 41, it says an eternal fire. Matthew chapter 3 says it's an unquenchable fire. Mark 9 says the fire is not quenched. And you could say, well, the Jewish rabbis in the Time Magazine article said that, that they don't believe what the Christians believe. Well, Daniel chapter 12 says shame and everlasting contempt. I want to put in your mind that word contempt. Why the word contempt? Well, I think the word contempt is very explicitly put there for you know um, I have contempt, maybe not just for the Lord, but for myself in hell because of the choices I've made. Why? Because in Revelations 14 and 20, it says the torment, the smoke of the torment rises forever and ever and a lake of burning sulfur where the wicked are tormented day and night forever and ever. So take that, Time Magazine. There are only two eternal pathways, one with God and one without. And when you choose to uh, pick one of those pathways, you absorb all the benefits and consequences of that pathway, and you are completely cut off from the other. Just think about this. You cannot have all the benefits of God without God. You cannot have Christ following without Christ. And it is even said in the past that for the people that hate God and hate what he stands for, heaven would be hell. So the Lord gives you what you want. 
He says, you, like Frank Sinatra, did it your way, so go ahead and have it your way eternally, because what separates you from me is what the Lord says is you've chosen your sin over me. And so I've chosen to eradicate it from the rest of my children. And I've chosen the the, the devastating impact to be put in a place that is separate from you. Now, I want to do this with you because I do this with the high schoolers when I go into the school. If you would just like give me this time, if you feel comfortable with it, please just close your eyes. We're going to have a little bit of imagination time. I want you to see something beyond feeling and beyond impulse and beyond who you say, well, this is who I am. I I struggle with this. No, love is a choice. Every day I get up and I step on a Lego, I choose to love my children. It's not how I feel. I choose to love. But I want you to imagine eternity, which is very, very hard for people to do, right? We live by the calendar. Uh, You know, it just, you know, every week comes to an end, every month comes to an end. We don't think of eternity or infinity, but we have infinity. Now imagine God presenting himself to you and telling you, please submit and surrender my life so uh, you can walk and talk with me forever. And you saying, no, I choose not to receive you and the Lord leaves. Now, I want you to feel this, but I also want you to understand this as a fact. When the Lord leaves, all light leaves with him. All goodness leaves with him. All hope leaves with him. All kindness leaves with him. All love and peace leaves with him. And what are you left with? Just you. But all the good parts have already left. And now you are stuck in a place, forget about fire, forget about flame. You are now living with this particular choice for eternity. And I think this is why the flame and fire of hell would be just but a beasting compared to this torment. I eternally made a decision to get rid of God. God never chose to get rid of me. I chose to get rid of God. I would think for this fact, this would be burning like way hotter in me than the flame is the seething contempt I would have for myself forever for being such an idiot, for making such a foolish mistake, right? Do you feel that? It's not just a feeling, but it's just a fact too. I made the mistake. God did not, did he? And just like this world, and I hope it's not too dark to say, you know, sometimes people say, I just want to get rid of it all. I just want to escape, and they commit suicide, correct? But in hell, is there going to be suicide? No, there's just going to be the internal, the internal idea that I made that decision. Now open your eyes. Come back to green, beautiful Sebastian. We won't go back there for the rest of the service. But I just want you to see the idea is that what's worse than hell is my separation from the Lord. Which brings us to our next point. Is hell fair? Yes, hell is just. I want you to hear the words of David when he wrote Psalms 51.4. Now, I want you to know the whole chapter 51 is when David, who was doing pretty good up until a certain point, eventually looked at a woman that wasn't his wife, um, looked at her with lust and said, I want to have an affair with her, did have an affair with her, got her pregnant, then tried to cover it up with conspiracy. The husband didn't go for it, and then he had him murdered. That's a big week. That's a tumble down to sin, right? And then eventually the husband got killed. The baby was born and then died. And then David was lost in his mourning before the Lord because of his sin. I want you to hear the words that he says here in verse 51. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Look at the next part. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. You know, the Bible describes our sin can be against each other. Like, I can hurt you, you can hurt me. The Bible even describes that our, some of our sin is against ourselves. The Bible even describes some sin is against our own bodies. 
You know, can you imagine your body proclaiming to the Lord, I'm done with Joey. He ate a sleeve of Oreos last night when Jackie asked him not to. He's guilty, which actually happened last night. I just want to let you know. And I confessed my sin this morning. I felt horrible. But all sin is against God. No matter what we think, all sin is against God. And so here's a very sobering thought. Unless you are forgiven, your choices of sin are always forever, eternally before the Lord. And so you have to ask yourself, sometimes people go, well, is hell eternal? Is that long enough? Don't you think that's too much? Doesn't it seem kind of over the top? A short life. Let's say if somebody lived like the, let's say average lifespan is like 72 to 75 years. 75 years of life, should that equal eternal consequences? Well, let me just say this. If someone murdered one person in your family for 10 seconds, should we only lock them up for 10 seconds? You know, the whole reason that we lock people up here on this earth right now when they do wrongdoing is because why? Because they're a detriment to society. They cause damage to everybody around them. And we say to them, you have lost the right to exercise your free will because with your free will, you make a damage and ruin everything that is good. That's who is in hell. So perfect injustice, if we believe that God is a perfect being. And if you really truthfully believe that he's a perfect being, that means he has perfect justice, right? And does that not mean if he was perfect in his justice that he should take appropriate steps to people who violate his law? Now, let me just take you a little bit deeper into this. These are the people who are not just, like I said before, not imperfect and now blameless. These are people who reject the goodness of the Lord. These are people who would ruin perfection for their own selfish gain. And sometimes people come to me and go, yeah, but what if this is a sinner that grew up in a bad home and they had a bad situation, a bad life? You were always held accountable to your own conscience before the Lord. Now, let me give you the case in point why this doesn't hold up in the court of law or in the court of heaven. There's an angel and his name was Lucifer. And he was in heaven and everything was amazing. And he didn't even have to try hard like, oh, but I'm a low level five angel. I want to be a level tier one angel. No, he was a level one angel. He was the leader of the choirs of heaven. All of the galaxies and all of the angels looked at at Lucifer and waited for him to strike the first note to lead the choirs of heaven. He was considered one of the most beautiful angels. He had everything that you could want in an angel. And yet, what did he say? "Not, Not your way, Lord, my way. In fact, I want my worship to be higher than your worship. And the Lord looked at him and said, that's not accurate. It's not that God was jealous. It was not that God, no, you're out of line. You're not serving the purpose that you live for. In fact, you're reaching for something that you can't ever have. You're not God. So you can't hold the universe together like I can. So I have to remove you because you've now brought disorder to the order. You've even brought destruction not only to yourself, you brought destruction to other people. One third of the angels followed him and they were cast out of heaven. You just think about this. He ruined it for himself and he ruined it for himself and others based on his selfishness and his self-centeredness. C.S. Lewis has a really great quote. He says, there's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And then God saying to those people who reject him, thy will be done. The Lord looking at those who say, no, it's your way, not my way. Why don't you see your way all the way where you can only have your way because you can't have all of me if you reject me. And so you think about this, the Lord knows the heart and he can judge the heart. Those who have hard hearts here on earth will have petrified hearts in eternity. Just think about that. Petrified hearts that reject God forever, which brings us to the final judgment 
of a hard heart. If you have a petrified heart that rejects God, where should you be in final judgment? I'll put it on the screen. We don't have to turn there. Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 through 15 says this. This is in the judgment of, of everything. Look at this. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So even death itself will be judged and cast in the final judgment. And the lake of fire is the second death. Remember I talked about second death? It's spiritual destruction. It's separation away from God, but you are still eternally in the flame. Verse 15, anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. It's amazing to me that the rich man uh, was looking for hope and for relief, but if you notice in the passage, he never actually repented. Uh, Revelation 16 is very accurate in saying this. We don't have to turn there, but it says that they were seared by the intense heats and they cursed the name of God who had control over the plagues, but they refused. They refused to repent and glorify him. Verse 11 and 16 says, they cursed the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they have done. There are no second chances after this life. That's the Bible's rules. Those are not my rules. And you just have to know this, you won't magically become a different person on the other side of who you choose to be. Today, you are becoming the person that you decide to become. No, it's not driven by feeling, and it's not driven by impulse, and it's not driven by something that you think that you're born in. We're born into sin. I was born into sin. You were born into sin. But I choose to love the Jesus Christ who loved me on the cross. And I hope that you do too. So everybody gets to decide of what kind of person they'll be. But that brings us to this particular point. What does that mean for us? It means hell is absolutely necessary. Hell shows us just how much God loves us by sending Jesus to save us from hell. So that's our last point up there. Hell is necessary, and it shows us that the gravity of our sin plus our eternal failure plus the justification of putting us in hell, is this. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, physical destruction in no way can outweigh spiritual destruction in hell. And I want to point this out to you. What's worse than hell itself? I want you to think about this. Jesus Christ, for the first time in his life, is hanging from the cross. And not only does he take on your sin, the Bible describes him as becoming your sin. Isn't that a crazy thought? saturated by your sin to the point that he became sin. In fact, remember we said when Jesus said, for those of you that are cursed, depart from me and go into the lake of fire. Jesus became your curse. He even cried out for the Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? You know what that is, that moment? That's the moment that he became hell for you. There is a place and a time where Jesus Christ became separated from the hope and the love and the living water of Jesus, of, of the Lord himself, so that you would never have to taste hell. It's not even a possibility. Did you know that even in your sin, when you come back to the Lord and you ask for forgiveness, the Lord has never left you, but he left Jesus Christ. That means Jesus Christ became your sin so you could become his righteousness. That means he became your curse. He became your curse through and through so that you could receive his blessed life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus Christ endured hell on the cross so that you could have heaven forever and eternally. 
And that's why you have to reflect on this particular moment. Look at the, the verse again, uh, Revelation 20, 15. You have to ask yourself, this, as you read this verse, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? Do you believe that Jesus Christ loved you so much that he left heaven to stand in between you and hell, preach the gospel, say, I'm here for you and save you from hell if you receive? You can't just believe, you have to receive. Every, there's a lot of people in the church, like we saw on that poll earlier, that believe that there's a Jesus, but they don't believe that he's their Jesus. You have to receive. You have to make a choice. Jesus Christ publicly hung on a cross because he made a choice to love you. Not at one point did it say he felt like loving you. Because I would tell you what, if you lined up all of my sins and laid them before the Lord and we looked at them together, I would say to Jesus Christ, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the records, Lord. I'm looking at my performance. I would get rid of me. But today, Jesus has said to me and he said to you, I choose you. I choose you on the cross. I choose you in forgiveness and I choose you forever. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a moment and we're going to reflect on this. I'm going to invite Miss Rachel up to play a song. But in this moment, I want you to just take inventory. I want you to think. I want you to hear the words of the song. And I want you to just have this moment. Lord, what are you saying to me right now in this scripture? What are you saying to me in this teaching? You are offering me heaven and I have the opportunity to choose hell. I have the opportunity to reject God or receive God. But right now, the Lord is offering you a gift. And you know, the gift isn't earned. And thank the Lord that it's not earned because if it was earned, we could lose it. God's holiness and his righteousness is a gift to you, but you have to believe that he is your Messiah that came and died for your sin. And then you have to receive that. And then you have to repent. And repent means to change your mind on sin, which means you have to walk away from sin. The same sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, the same sin that separated him from God, you have to walk away from. But that's not God's plan. It said he came and gave his only son not to condemn the world, but to love the world. 